You know, one of the complaints that we hear in, in sort of our secular culture about the Ten Commandments is it's just a, it's a bunch of don'ts. You know, it, people just think it's a list of thou shalt nots, and they think that God is just some kind of a cosmic killjoy who just wants to ruin everybody's fun. But we know that's not true. And we know that even behind those negative commands, God always has a positive reason. Those commandments are there for a reason. He has a purpose. And it isn't to cause you pain. It isn't to keep you from enjoying life. In fact, it's there for your protection. These Ten Commandments really are God's prescription for us to live healthier, happier lives, to have stronger families. And, and He wants us to take these preventative steps to protect our families, to keep those we love from heartbreak, God gives us these commandments really just to show us how best to live. So let's dive right into the seventh commandment. Exodus twenty fourteen. You shall not commit adultery. Now I wish I could just read that and say, okay, we're done. And you would think that that should be pretty cut and dry and simple. But we don't have to look very far to see that that's not the case. Adultery is like the worst kind of cancer a family can face. It festers and it grows and it destroys a marriage faster than, than really anything else. And God wants to protect us and our families from that kind of a heartbreak. Now, for some of you this morning, your heart's already been broken. And I know that even the word adultery for some people listening today causes pain. It brings back shameful memories. And I want you to know that's not the purpose behind this message this morning. We're not here to, to drag up your past or to put you on trial and, and, and I want you to know that if you have sincerely confessed your sin to God, no matter what it may be, no matter what might have happened in your past, if you've sincerely confessed that sin to God, He has forgiven you. And He has forgotten about it. It is in the past, and that's where it needs to stay. In fact, if you feel guilty over something you've done in the past, and you know that you sincerely confessed it and asked God to forgive it, if you still feel guilty about it, I want you to know that guilt doesn't come from God, it comes from the devil. Jesus has forgiven you, and He does not want you to live under that anymore. So don't let Satan condemn you for a past that God has already forgiven. Let's focus on the future, not on the past. We live in a sex-obsessed culture, don't we? With few, if any, morals about sexual behavior. And if there are any morals in our society about sexual behavior, they're very confusing and conflicting because they're not based on any kind of foundation. And sadly, our society's view of sex and sexuality has seeped into the church. And it is increasingly infecting our views and values as Christians. So, so let's start this morning with a couple of foundational truths. The first is that God created humanity, male and female. That's the first foundation. It's right there in Genesis chapter 1. The second foundation is that God created sex. Sex was his idea. And like everything else he created, God declared it good. So God is not some kind of a prude. God is not a killjoy. God created sex. But like everything else, sex must be controlled. It's a good thing when it's used the way our Creator intends for it to be used. But when it's misused or abused, it's one of the most destructive forces in any relationship. And this isn't just true about sex, it's true about all of God's gifts. Take water, for example. 
Water is a great gift, isn't it? We need it to live, right? But too much water, and what happens? You drown. Or take fire, for example. It's a good thing. It can warm you. It can, it can provide light. It can cook your food. But if you're not careful, it can also burn and destroy. It's all in how we handle it. So God has given us sex and properly controlled and expressed within marriage, it is a good and beautiful gift. But outside of marriage, it is destructive and it is detrimental to your health physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way. God intends sex to be a tool for building a family and strengthening a marriage, not destroying it. And the thing about adultery is that no one ever goes into a marriage planning on breaking those vows in the worst way possible. Nobody does that. And no husband or wife just wakes up one day saying, you know, I think I'm going to be unfaithful to my spouse today. It's always a slow burn toward adultery. That's why Hebrews 13.4 tells us marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So this isn't just a message for people who are married. This is a message for people who are single. Even single people, they're included in that. Marriage should be honored by all. We should all honor marriage by the way we behave and act. Because God will judge the adulterer and all sexually immoral. So this morning, what are God's presentative measures against this cancer? against this devastating consequence when people are unfaithful to their spouse. How, how like, you know, you know we, we look for ways to fireproof our homes or to waterproof. You know, if somebody lives in a flood zone, they're going to try to waterproof their home. How can we affair-proof our marriages? That's what I want us to look at this morning. And, and I want to begin by giving just a brief disclaimer. I'm not a marriage counselor. I'm not a licensed marriage counselor, okay? And I am... I am far from a perfect husband, though I did marry the perfect wife. But I have been trained in some marriage counseling techniques and materials, and I've done lots of premarital, marital counseling with couples. I've married quite a few of, of y'all sitting out here today. And, uh, and so I, I'm speaking from that expertise, drawing this morning from that knowledge, and also from uh, uh, Rick Warren and his wife Cindy, they have a fantastic uh, program they do uh, for married couples, and so I'm, I'm kind of borrowing from some of that. And, and I can recommend to you, you know, some great marriage resources. I'll bring up a few of them this morning. But our Faith at Home Center uh, that Ben mentioned is, is a, also a great resource. There's a wonderful uh, material down there you can look at to help you build a, a stronger marriage. But the first thing we need to do to a fair proof our marriages and our homes, is we need to make a commitment to God's standards. Regardless of your past failures, commit today that from now on, you're going to live by God's standards. That means that you care more about what God says about sex and sexuality than what our culture says. And, and listen, I want to tell you something. Our culture is constantly changing what it says about sex and sexuality. But guess what? God has never changed what He says about sex and sexuality. It's been the same for over 2,000 years. So we can build our lives on that foundation. The Bible says that sex is for marriage only, period. That's it. It's not meant to be experienced before marriage. 
It's not been, meant to. It's not meant to be experienced outside of marriage. Psalm one nineteen nine asks, "How can a young person stay on the path of purity by listening to the culture and doing what the culture does? By going with the flow? By following after the example of celebrities in Hollywood? No, he answers it by living according to your word." That's how we keep ourselves on the path of purity. Adultery is never an option. There's no justification for it. There's never an excuse for it. It's never okay, no matter what circumstances. In in the book of Genesis, we read the story about young, handsome, strong Joseph. And Joseph uh, is a slave in Potiphar's house. And he's such a, a faithful slave that Potiphar puts him in charge of his entire household. But Potiphar's wife has a thing for Joseph. And she tries to seduce him. Now, Joseph had every excuse in the book to just go with the flow and do what Mrs. Potiphar said. It was even socially acceptable in that day and age for the master and his wife to have a little something on the side. They never would have looked down on that. But Joseph answered vehemently, I will not sin against my God. And he ran away. Not a bad strategy when we're faced with sexual sin and temptation, is it? In fact, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, don't entertain the culture's excuses. Don't try to justify sin. Run away from it. Resist it at all costs. Now, if you know the story, you know that Joseph ended up in jail because of the stance he took, because of his commitment to God's standards. But God didn't forget him. God honored Joseph, and eventually he became the second in command of all of Egypt because he chose to be committed to God's standards. Proverbs 5 gives us a father's wise advice to his son to run away from adultery. In verse 15, the father says, Be faithful to your own wife. Give your love to her alone. This is not a suggestion. This is a plain restatement of God's seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. And, and this, these standards that we must commit to, we don't just need to commit to them quietly privately, in, in, in the midst of a society that is literally going down the drain to a sewer of sexual sin, we, the people of God, need to make our stand publicly for God's standards. And especially with your spouse. That's the first step if you want to protect your marriage. Tell your spouse, I am making a commitment today by God's grace that no matter what you may do, regardless of the choices you may make, no matter what may happen in our marriage, I will never be unfaithful to you. And that is my choice. I will never be unfaithful to you. You say that to your spouse. That's where protecting your marriage begins. But secondly, you need to affirm that with your friends and your family and your co-workers. Let there be no doubt in anyone's mind where you stand on this issue. Everyone who knows you needs to know that you are a man or a woman who lives by God's standards and who will be faithful to your spouse. They need to know that. Julia knows that I am hopelessly in love with her and I am completely devoted to her. She knows that. And I hope that you all know that I'm a a one-woman man. 
There's nobody but her. That should be true for all of us. We need to commit to God's standards. Secondly, we need to magnify the consequences. Magnify the consequences. Remind yourself how devastating and destructive sexual sin is. Proverbs 6.32 says, But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. See, nothing damages our heart and soul like sexual sin does. Nothing. Sexual sin leaves permanent scars, lingering shame, an enormous sense of loss, damaged reputation, broken relationships. People wish they could take it back. They could turn back the clock, but it's too late. The damage is already done. This is why Jesus uses this harsh imagery of cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye if they offend you. In other words, Jesus is saying it's better to go through life maimed or blind than to carry around the damage of sexual sin in your heart. That's how serious it is. Proverbs 6, 27 and 29 says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Adultery carries a high price. Ultimately, it could cost you everything. You remember Esau? Esau, who was so hungry and he was so impatient and so impetuous that he couldn't wait and he sold his inheritance, his birthright, for a bowl of soup. And we read that story and we think, what an idiot! But how many people sell their soul? How many people sacrifice their family on the altar of a moment of pleasure? Now, I know some people hearing me today, you're in a difficult marriage. You're struggling through some tough times. Maybe, maybe the grass is looking a little greener in other places. Maybe you even find yourself looking around considering your options. Well, I want you to remember this morning that the cost of maintaining, the cost of restoring or repairing a dysfunctional marriage is nowhere near the cost of adultery. Being faithful, unfaithful, never pays off. And in the long run, everybody loses. Julie and I have been married for almost 17 years. See, I know, I got that right, didn't I? 17 years. And by the grace of God, I can tell you today that she's the only woman that I've ever known. She is the only woman for me. And by God's continual grace, I intend to keep it that way for as long as I live. Why? Well, for the first reason, is because I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I owe Him everything. He gave His life for me that I might be forgiven of my sins. And I love Jesus. He is ever faithful to me. He never forsakes me. He never runs out on me. Jesus is always there for me. And Jesus said that if I love Him, I will obey His commands. And He commands me to be faithful to my wife. Second reason is because I love my wife and my daughter. And, and it, I just can't even bear the thought of doing something that would so hurt and dishonor them. I love them too much to do that. Adultery is one of the most selfish things you could ever do. It is not love. Listen, when it comes to adultery, Tina Turner had it right. What's love got to do with it? Nothing. 
absolutely nothing. Because love means being faithful to your vows and honoring your spouse above yourself. That's love. And the third reason is because I fear the consequences, especially the judgment of God and Julia killing me. (laughs) This past Wednesday night we were talking about the fear of the Lord in our Bible study in Proverbs. And we need to have a fear of God. In other words, we should fear His judgment. We should fear the natural consequences of sin because it's true. Eventually you will reap what you sow. And each one of us will someday stand before God and give an account for what we've done with our lives. And when you stood before a preacher or a judge and you said those vows, you were making a holy covenant with God. And He will hold you responsible if you're unfaithful to those vows. The third thing we need to do is maintain our marriage. Maintain our marriage. Being married is kind of like owning a home. If you own a home... You have to maintain it, don't you? It requires constant attention and care. And the same is true for a marriage. And and when you work at keeping your marriage healthy and happy, it minimizes any attraction that you might have to anyone else. 1 Corinthians 7.3 says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. In other words, spouses should pay attention to each other's needs and help meet those needs. And if your needs are being met at home, you're not going to be tempted to look elsewhere to have them met, are you? One of the books that I have recommended to couples is called His Needs, Her Needs by Dr. Willard Harley. And through extensive interviews he did with literally thousands of couples, he identified the top five needs for most men and most women. I say most because we're all different, we're all unique, and so these aren't universal, but they are, they are very descriptive of what he has discovered among most couples. And so the top five needs of most men are sexual fulfillment, recreational companionship, an attractive spouse, domestic support, and admiration. Because, let's face it, guys, we can be a little insecure sometimes, can't we? We like to have a little stroke our egos a bit. For women, the top five needs for most are affection, conversation, honesty and openness, financial support, and family commitment. Now, I want you to notice something about these two lists, and you'll see them side by side in your notes in the bulletin. These aren't just in different orders. Some of these are exact opposites of each other, aren't they? I mean, men want recreational companionship. We want somebody to to watch a game with us or to go fishing with us or to go do something fun with us. Women want somebody to talk to, right? And men, let's face it, we're pretty superficial. We want an attractive wife. But women, they want honesty and openness. They're so much more noble than we are, aren't they? But, But, you know, no wonder couples can't seem... To click in marriage sometimes, right? I mean, I I saw something just today that said that, that, you know, the relationship of husband and wife is psychological. One is psycho and one is logical. (laughs) And I'll let you debate with your husband or wife which is which, okay? I'm not going to go there. But but really, you know, we, we come into marriage thinking that we're marrying someone like ourselves. And, and, and so we try to meet 
a need in our spouse that we have. Not their need, but we're trying to meet our needs in them. And then we wonder why they don't react the way that we would. And why they, they tell us that they're not getting from us what they, what they need. Another book I use with couples is Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages. And, and the idea here is that there are different ways that we receive love. Different ways that we understand love. And those are words of affirmation, physical affection, quality time, gifts, and acts of service. And these can be men or women, okay? So you have a different love language probably from your spouse. And again, the problem is we tend to show love the way we receive love. And so you're trying to express love to your spouse in the way you want them to express love to you, and both of you end up feeling frustrated. You feel like your needs aren't being met. You feel like that you're not being told you're loved. So what's the solution? The solution is get down to the serious hard work of learning your spouse's needs and your spouse's love language and then decide, how am I going to meet those needs and how am I going to express love in a way that he or she will understand? This will go a long way in protecting your marriage. When you said your vows to your spouse, whether you realized it or not, you were committing yourself to an exclusive partnership of love and devotion. And when you said those vows, you made a commitment to seek the fulfillment of your needs from your spouse alone, these deepest fundamental needs, and no one else. And you made a promise to your spouse that you would seek to fulfill their needs and to love them in such a way that they would never turn to anyone else. One of the biggest reasons affairs happen is because someone feels cheated. Not necessarily cheated on, just cheated. They feel like they got a raw deal because their needs aren't being met. Now, this isn't an excuse for adultery. It's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that's one of the ways that Satan lures people into this sin. And so one of the ways we can prevent it is by making sure that we live up to our vows by actually loving and caring for our spouse when they're sick and when they're well, when times are good and when times are tough. And make the decision right now to meet each other's needs in such a way that you'd be a fool to ever turn to anyone else. If you keep your lawn so green, everyone else's will look brown by comparison. That's what you've got to do. And one of the best ways to do that, and one of the best ways to maintain your marriage, is to simply be each other's best friends. And how do two people become best friends? Through time and through talking. You're not going to be best friends with somebody that you never spend time with. And you're never going to be best friends with somebody that you don't talk to. So make the commitment. If you have to put it down in your day planner or put it in your Google calendar, do it. Make a date. Save time. Sit together on the porch. Go for a walk. Talk about life. Talk, don't just talk about the events of your day. Talk about how those events made you feel. Talk about your highest hopes and your darkest fears. Be honest and open and vulnerable and let your spouse get to know you. Maintain your marriage. The next thing we need to do, the last thing, is minimize the opportunity. Ephesians 5.3 says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Y'all, it takes more than just good intentions to remain pure. It takes a plan. If you don't want to get stung, you stay away from the bees, right? 
In other words, don't put yourself in situations where you know you're going to be tempted. Recognize those circumstances that may tempt you, that weaken your standards. Be alert. Be aware of them. Now, some of you this morning are sitting there thinking, you know, David, this is a fine sermon, but I've been married so many years, this isn't going to happen to me. But I want you to listen to Paul's warning here in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. In other words, none of us are immune. Every single one of us need to put the guards around our life and recognize the warning signs of temptation because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So don't fool yourself. Don't let Satan fool you into thinking that you don't have to worry about this. Establish guidelines, standards, non-negotiables to keep you doing what is right by the Lord rather than by what society says, to keep you from even the appearance of immorality. So here's a quick few things some guidelines and standards you can set. One is don't discuss marriage problems with a member of the opposite sex. It is so tempting to think that, hey, I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to be a good friend. I'm just going to be sympathetic. But what the danger here is that as you hear this other person telling you about their marital problems, there are two dangers. One is that you start thinking and maybe even saying to the other person, you know, I would never treat you that way. I would respect you better than that. I, I see what he doesn't see in you. And the other danger, is sort of the, the converse of that, is that the other person starts to look at you as being somebody who's meeting needs that their spouse isn't meeting. Y'all, that is dangerous thin ice to be on. So don't, don't go there. Recommend them to a pastor. Recommend them to a counselor. Tell them you're going to pray for them and then walk away. The second thing, don't go fishing for compliments. Don't go looking for them. Ladies, you may have married a man who didn't notice you dyed your hair blue two weeks ago. But that is no excuse for you to be unfaithful to them. It doesn't make it okay or healthy to seek that affirmation or that attention from anyone else outside your marriage. That deep emotional need for affirmation and those kind of compliments should only be met by your spouse. You know, we're in the midst as a culture of this sort of this Me Too movement. And Hollywood, supposedly, they, at least they claim they've kind of woken up to this, but... If you look at their movies and TV shows, I don't think they really have. But you know, this is nothing new to God's Word. God's Word has always been clear that men and women need to watch what we say to the opposite sex. That we need to be careful of the things we focus on and that the compliments that we make about someone's looks are not inappropriate. We need to be careful that we're not giving off wrong signals. We need to be careful of the temptation of lust. Basically, we need to treat people the way we want to be treated. I mean, that's the golden rule, folks. It's pretty basic. Or, or guys, maybe think about it this way. You treat that other girl or that other woman the way you would want your mother or your sister or your daughter to be treated. You respect and honor them as human beings made in the image of God. Another boundary is we need to avoid prolonged stares and lingering touches. Your mom was right. It is rude to stare. And that doesn't change just because the person you're staring at is attractive. Now, if you're single and they're single and you're flirting, uh, that's okay. You know, if you can catch their eye and wink and smile, wave at them, okay, that's fine. But guess what? If you're married, flirting is over. You are disqualified from playing that game. So don't, don't go there. Avoid... Prolonged stares 
And, and, and more important than that, I think, is, is, to, is to watch out for those lingering touches. Now, our, our culture is very confused about what is and is not appropriate touching. But, but really, it's not rocket science. You know if a hug has gone on too long. Yeah? You, you know what you're communicating, rubbing that person's back or touching that person's leg. Don't do it. And listen, as church people, we need to especially be careful because, you know, we're a friendly bunch, right? We're kind of a touchy-feely bunch. We like to hug and shake hands and, and pat people on the back, but we just need to be careful that our friendliness doesn't turn into creepiness. <laughs> so use a little bit of common sense. Now, I could go on. You know, there, there, are, there are boundaries we need to set when we go on business trips away from home. There are boundaries we need to set with co-workers of the opposite sex. And I love the Mike Pence principle. You know, that he will never dine alone with another woman unless his wife is there with him. Or Billy Graham. Billy Graham wouldn't even go into an elevator alone because he, he did not want there to be an opportunity for someone to accuse him of doing something or saying something he didn't do. And you know, when Billy Graham died, he, we could honestly say he lived a life free of scandal. I think he's on to something. And our society wants to, wants to make fun of these men for their stances, but I think they are on to something. Avoid even the appearance of evil. Now, I have a few guidelines that, that I've always lived by, and that's that I don't ever give a, a lady, or when I was youth mission, never gave a girl a ride uh, in my truck or my car alone. If Julia wasn't with me, I, I just I didn't do it. When I'm counseling a woman in my, in my office, I make sure Julia knows, I make sure Summer, my secretary, knows, and I make sure to leave my office door open. Those are just some simple, very easy things to do to minimize even the, the appearance of anything that is evil. Examples of boundaries that we can set to protect ourselves, our marriages, our reputations, and the marriages and reputations of others. The family is the foundation of society. God created the family in the very beginning, and the foundation of the family is marriage. Is it any wonder that Satan is attacking the most basic building block of society? He's attacking the root of all of the relationships and institutions. And the choice is ours. Are we going to hand the devil the axe, or are we going to stand in defense of the sacred institution of marriage? You can affect a change in our society. You don't have to wait for Congress to do it. You don't have to worry about what the Supreme Court's going to do. You can begin to take real steps to honor marriage as sacred. Even if you're single, set boundaries and live by God's standards to honor marriage and the marriage bed as sacred. Now this morning, what if you've already messed up? Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe you've already hurt the ones you love the most. You've broken trust. Well, the good news is that forgiveness can be found in Jesus Christ. He really does give us fresh new beginnings. He really can take something that's dead and bring it alive. He really can take something that's broken and He can make it whole again. But we must first confess our sin. We have to acknowledge what we have done, own up and take the blame. The second thing is we have to repent. And to repent means you turn your back on your sin. That means if you've got something going on with someone else, guess what? You've got to end it. Get rid of it. Put a stop to it. Don't speak to that person or see that person. Unfriend them on Facebook. 
Now, and listen, you may not even be guilty of literal physical adultery, but you know what? We can be guilty of emotional adultery. Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so there may be people that you are turning to for those emotional needs that you don't think you're getting at home. You need to put a stop to that before it gets worse. Confess and repent of your sin and ask for God's forgiveness. And ask for your spouse's forgiveness. Make any restitution that might be required to heal that broken relationship and rebuild that trust. And humbly ask for their forgiveness. This morning, no matter where you stand in this, no matter what your past experiences is, I want you to know that God loves you. And God wants what's best for you. And God wants to forgive you of your sin. And He wants to help you to live life to the fullest. To experience nothing but joy and satisfaction and purpose in life. But you've got to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. This morning, do you know Jesus? Have you confessed your sin to Him and asked Him to forgive you, to come into your heart and save you? If not, then when we sing in just a moment, I invite you to come today and to begin a love relationship with Jesus. He will always and forever be faithful to you. No matter how unfaithful to Him we may be, He never turns His back on His children. This morning, maybe God is calling you to unite with this church family, that this is going to be the place where you're going to help build that stronger marriage and strengthen your family with this church family. We invite you to come this morning and unite with this church. But maybe this morning, you don't even need to come down to this altar. Maybe this morning you need to go home and sit down with your husband or your wife and have a heart-to-heart conversation and pray together.